Criminology is a true crime podcast that may contain discussion about violent or disturbing topics. Listener discretion is advised. everyone and welcome to episode 253 of the criminology podcast i'm mike ferguson and this is mike morford mr morford what's going on with you buddy i'm getting the house painted this week and i'm excited about that a little freshen up what's new with you well i would say the biggest thing is it's been in the 70s this week which you're used to but you know i'm not and it's been amazing cut the grass for the first time that you know you get those smells you get those um feelings of okay the weather's warming up we're about ready to get into some outside activities and and i love that awesome it's good to get that nice burst of clean fresh weather and get out there and start doing stuff yeah yeah it really is hey let's go ahead and give our patreon shout outs we had sean riley and Jenny Todd. So some great new support. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks so much for taking the time to support the show. It goes a long way to getting these episodes out. And for anyone that would like to support criminology, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash criminology. We want to remind everyone that CrimeCon 2023 is less than six months away. So time is running out to get your pass and attend. CrimeCon 2023 is happening here in Florida in Orlando. September 22nd through the 24th at the World Center Marriott. There's a lot of stuff to do. See all your favorite true crime celebs, meet up with all your true crime friends, and come by and say hi, and maybe hang out with us on Podcast Row. But definitely don't wait. Head over to CrimeCon.com and use our promo code CRIMINOLOGY at checkout to save 10% on your standard badges. All right, Morph, let's go ahead and jump into this week's case, and it's one that takes place in Racine, Wisconsin. The city is located on the shore of Lake Michigan at the mouth of the Root River. Racine is situated 22 miles south of Milwaukee and about 60 miles north of Chicago. Unlike those big cities not too far away, life in Racine by comparison is usually a bit calmer. In 1983, the population of Racine was just under 85,000 people. Despite a relatively small population, there were many violent crimes in the area at the time. One of those violent crimes involved the death of a 51-year-old woman named Helen Sebastian. And while we can't be sure if she was the victim of a serial killer or was targeted by someone for reasons unknown, we do know is that the details of what happened to her grisly and her bizarre and disturbing death shocked residents of Racine. Helen's case has been unsolved for over four decades, and as far as we know, shows no signs of being solved anytime soon. It seems there's a lack of evidence in the case that could lead to answers. And a witness, if they're still alive, may be the only thing that could bring answers in the death of Helen Sebastian. But if that's the case, then time may be running out, since the case is now 40 years old. We don't know a whole lot about Helen's life. What we do know was that she was a lifelong resident of Racine-born Helen Stelmack to parents Albert and Adela Stelmack on October 14, 1931. She had at least two siblings, a brother and a sister. In April 1952, Helen married a man named Ralph Busimi. It's not clear how long they were married, but at some point they divorced. In August of 1960, Helen remarried to a man named Louis Sebastian, who was 15 years Helen senior. And we don't know a ton about their lives together, but it appears that neither had any children together or separately. The couple lived together in Racine until Lewis passed away in February 1976. By 1983, Helen was living in an upstairs flat on Center Street. Now, some reports say it was 1825, while others say it was 1827 Center Street. Her mom, Adela, lived in the unit below. On February 20th, 1983, 51-year-old Helen knew what she wanted for dinner that night. She prepared a pot roast and stuck it in the oven. 
She had a long time to wait before it would be done, so she decided to leave it cooking while she popped out. Helen went downstairs to her mother Adela's unit to tell her that she would be gone for a while. Adela had lost her husband, too, so the living arrangement for both Helen and Adela was comforting to both of them, as they were both widows. In fact, just days before marked the seven-year anniversary of Louis Sebastian's passing, and perhaps his death was on Helen's mind. The only other person living in either Helen's or Adela's residence was a man named Larry, who was running a room in Helen's level of the home. After talking to her mom and telling her that she had a roast cooking, Helen left. She told her mom she was heading to a friend's house to play cards, but by morning, Helen had not returned home. Adela and Helen's sister-in-law, Doreen, called all of Helen's friends that they could think of, but no one had heard from Helen or seen her over the past day. No one knew where she went or what happened to her. Doreen would later say of her sister-in-law to the Racine Journal Times, we just never heard from her again. On February 22nd, after Helen had been missing for two days, Doreen filed a missing persons report with the Racine Police Department. There were no signs of her, but there were also no signs that anything bad had happened to her. She was an adult, after all. Adela and Doreen were worried about Helen. It wasn't like her to just take off. Shortly after Helen's disappearance, her sister Jean received a phone call sometime in the middle of the night. A female caller asked if she was speaking to Helen's sister, and Jean groggily told the caller, yes, why? The woman on the other end of the line said, I'm just warning you, she isn't going to live very long. Hearing this, Jean sat up and opened her eyes, wide awake. Jean tried to ask the woman who she was and what she meant by what she said, but it was no use. The caller hung up and never called again. At the time of the call, it's not clear if Jean took the call seriously, but when Helen vanished, it jumped to the top of her mind. But that wasn't the only time Jean heard that kind of threat against Helen. According to Jean, Larry, the man who was running a room from Helen, had once said something similar to her. Shortly before Helen disappeared, Jean tried to call Helen, but Larry answered the phone instead. Larry told Jean that Helen didn't have long to live. Worried, Jean asked if Helen was sick or if something had happened to her sister. According to the Racine Journal Times, this Larry guy just said, she's not sick, I'm just warning you. More if you said right up front that this case has some bizarre aspects to it. Well, this is obviously one of those. Now, both of these calls occurred before Helen went missing. But even on their own, without the context of, you know, your sister disappearing essentially these would be very odd you know I'm, I'm just thinking to myself if somebody calls me on the phone and says that someone i love doesn't have long to live okay i'm gonna take that pretty seriously now i have no frame of reference i, I don't know who this person is i don't know exactly what they're talking about but at the very least that would that would scare me that would worry me yeah, and I think it's especially troubling because this happened with not just one caller, but two separate callers. So this this had to be something that was pretty shocking to her sister, Jean. Well, in this phone call with Larry, that's not a mystery caller, right? This is not someone who's calling you and they don't give you their name. Larry is known to Jean and he lives, you know, essentially with Helen. So... I mean, I think that's even um, a scarier type of call. Now, it's not clear if Jean told Helen about these two separate phone calls in which two different people said that she didn't have long to live. But what we do know is that somehow this information was not given to police. In fact, they wouldn't find out about these threats over the phone until 25 years after Helen vanished. Apparently, they didn't interview Jean for over two decades, for whatever reason. Now, some people have made the case that Jean could have taken it upon herself to come forward to police and share this information with them, which would have perhaps given them a new angle in 1983 to investigate. And I get that take. If someone you know has it, I think it's always difficult to analyze something so many years later and say, well, you should have done this. You could have done this or that. It's kind of in our nature, but you know, it's hard to, to put blame on Gene in this situation. 
I think some people have an issue that she didn't come forward when her sister went missing, thinking this might be important because if, even if she thought at the time these calls were prank calls or whatever, as soon as her sister goes missing, you think that would make a spark that would say, oh, I've got to come forward and tell the police about these calls. But also, a lot of people take issue with the police apparently not interviewing Jean for years because when someone goes missing, you think they would go around to each family member, each person that knew Helen and say, hey, any idea what might have happened, any threats against her, anything like that. So I can see why people would take issue with both Jean and the police in this situation. Yeah, no, I, I definitely get it. I wouldn't fault people for having that um, that thought because you can definitely see where it would have been beneficial for the police to interview Jean. It would have also been probably very beneficial for her to come forward very early. Despite having no leads or sightings of Helen the day she vanished, investigators did search for Helen in the days and weeks after she went missing, but had no luck finding her. Then, on March 28, 1983, just over a month after Helen vanished, a 10-year-old boy told authorities that he thought he saw a human hand in the backyard of an empty home on 12th Street. Police descended on the property located at 1409 12th Street, not sure what they were heading into. What they found shocked the most seasoned detectives on the force. Police recovered multiple body parts, a hand, an arm, and parts of a leg, all of which appeared to belong to a woman. The following day, on March 29th, internal organs were found in a bag next to the Chicago and Northwestern Railroad tracks near 16th Street, about half a mile away. Finally, the next day, on March 30th, a head was found wrapped in paper and plastic bags in some weeds growing next to the tracks west of the 1700 block of Racine Street. Based on the head, police suspected that the body belonged to missing 51-year-old Helen Sebastian, and sure enough, a friend of the family was able to positively ID the head as belonging to Helen. Helen's torso has never been found, and her cause of death is still unknown and the medical examiner was unable to determine an approximate time or date of death. The various locations where Helen's remains were discovered were all within one to two miles of her Center Street residence. So, Morph, as you were kind of going through that, you know, I, I was painting a picture in my mind, and it's not a good one. This was a very gruesome scene. It had to have been. And you think about, you know, a small boy out playing, 10 years old, finds a human hand. Okay. That's going to be traumatizing. I think for me, anytime you have multiple body parts, in this case, a hand, an arm, part of a leg, it's not only gruesome, but it starts the wheels turning. What exactly happened here? We know it wasn't good. You and I talk about death and murders a lot. They happen. But when you get into the area of dismemberment, okay, now you've got an extra level to the crime. Why? And those are the type of questions that, you know, I, I think pop up. I mean, obviously there's the question of why someone would have killed Helen, but then the other question of why they would take the further steps of dismembering her body putting them in different places. And to be clear, the medical examiner couldn't determine a cause of death, but we have to assume that this was a murder case. And I think it also says something about the person that dumped her body parts because they didn't try and hide them. They were left out where they could be found, not buried or thrown into a river or anything like that. So um, it, it, maybe it's a way of taunting the authorities or taunting Helen's family by leaving these body parts to be found. Well, one thing is certain. It just brings up a lot of questions on top of the big one is what exactly happened to Helen and who did it. Police were tasked with breaking the news to Helen's family that she was dead. Obviously they were devastated when they heard the, the news. And then on top of that, the gruesome details on August 22nd, 1983, after almost six months, police released Helen's remains to her family, and they had a church service for her, and she was laid to rest at Holy Cross Cemetery in Racine. Although Helen's family was grieving, they didn't have much time to mourn for Helen 
because police were desperate to solve the case. And they felt that Helen's family may be able to help piece together what happened to her. Unfortunately, they were unable to help the investigation much because Helen wasn't very close to her family. Jean called her once a week or so to check on her. She and her brother, Chester, who is now deceased, were worried about Helen due to her issues with drinking. They had tried to talk to her about their concerns, but she didn't want to hear it, and she wouldn't stop drinking. Her sister, Jean, told the Racine Journal Times she had her own crowd. Since her husband's death, Helen lived life like she was single and free, unlike her siblings. So it was that lack of things in common that kept some distance between all of them. And it wasn't just the difference in lifestyle or Helen's drinking problem that caused distance in the siblings' relationship. Jean was 10 years older than Helen. A big difference. Typically, if you move out when you're 18, ready to start your own life and family, and your sibling is just eight years old, you don't really hang out much with them or have a lot in common. Despite not being inseparable and disagreeing with her choices, Jean says Helen was a good person. She'd give her heart away. She was good that way. Doreen recalls the love Helen had for her nieces and nephews and how she always had a dollar or two for the kids, even though she didn't earn much from the ironing and cleaning Helen did for others. Helen's family racked their brains trying to figure out who would want to harm Helen and why, but they couldn't think of anyone in particular. Doreen told the Journal Times, I can't imagine what she could have done or said that would have brought on the terrible crime that was committed. We think maybe that Helen could have seen something or overheard something. I don't know. Once again, this is where both police and Helen's sister, Jean, have received some criticism. One, because Jean didn't come forward to tell police about the threatening calls she received about Helen. And as for the police, you would think they would have asked the family point blank if anyone had ever threatened Helen. But if Helen did know something big, something that someone didn't want her to share, what could it have been? Some have wondered if it could have had anything to do with the murder of 74-year-old Joanna Levanis. Joanna was stabbed to death at the Sam Levanis Jewelry Store in 6th Street in Racine on January 12, 1983. She had a bedroom at the back of the store, and it's in this bedroom where she was killed. Doreen believed that Helen and Joanna were friends, leading her to wonder if Helen had information on Joanna's murder and ended up being killed for it. A man named William Mattis was convicted for the murder of Joanna Levanis sometime after Helen's murder. There was a string of burglaries on 6th Street targeting bars around the same time. Helen was known to drink and go to bars. Her family couldn't shake the possible connection. According to investigators, it was looked into immediately, and they couldn't find a connection between Helen's murder and the burglaries or Joanna's murder. Authorities looked to other cases where victims had been dismembered trying to find a lead, And they found a bunch of cases because apparently people dismembering bodies in that area at that time was more common than you might think. In October 1983, the dismembered torso of 18-year-old Eric Hansen was found by a hiker in Petrifying Springs Park in Summers Township, Wisconsin. The rest of his body was never found. Investigators looked for suspects everywhere. And they didn't limit their search to the state of Wisconsin. House painter Larry Eiler was charged with 21 murders in the Chicago area and in Indiana, including the murder of a 16-year-old boy who was dismembered. For this victim, Eiler was charged with concealing a death. In Eiler's case, police told the press that he dismembered people and put some of their remains in plastic bags before tossing them out in random areas. Investigators later looked at serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer, who was active in the area at the time. Authorities tried to link him to Helen's case with no luck. They were really grasping at straws in an effort to solve Helen's case. And and obviously everybody, you know, knows who Jeffrey Dahmer was and what he did. Larry Eiler is a little less well-known. You know, we covered him on true crime all the time. He was a very bad guy. I mean, you just mentioned it more, at least 21 murders, But what really interested me about the Larry Eiler case was that, you know, his attorney was Kathleen Zellner, who is now a a pretty famous attorney. A lot of people might recognize that name from the second season of Making a Murderer. I really got a kick out of her, for lack of a better term. She's fiery 
And, but in this case, I mean, she was pretty young back when Larry Eiler was still alive. He divulged some secrets to her that she ultimately couldn't tell the police until after he died. So it's a pretty interesting aspect to that case. Another case that came to the attention of investigators was that of Sonia Rao on July 2nd, 1990. The body of 23-year-old Sonia Renee Rao was found by garbage collectors. Her dismembered body had been cut into six pieces, each wrapped in its own garbage bag, and they were all shoved into the trash can and placed on the street for collection. A leg wrapped in plastic fell out of the truck just outside of the Rao home on 14th Street in Lockport, Illinois, prompting the garbage collectors to stop and they ended up discovering the rest of the remains. Sonia's husband was eventually convicted of her murder. It's highly unlikely that he had anything to do with Helen's murder. He admitted killing his wife, but authorities didn't feel as though he was a serial killer. He told the judge at his sentencing, this was the result of three and a half years of marriage and my wife's alcoholism and infidelity was a problem for the last two of those years. 27-year-old John Rao was sentenced to 70 years in prison. So, I mean, this seems as though it was an incident of fatal domestic violence rather than John Rao out-targeting strangers. Investigators cast a wider net and looked through more crimes in the area that may be connected to Helen's death. 24-year-old James Madden disappeared from Raymond, Wisconsin in June 1990. When he was last seen on the evening of June 26th, Madden had been going door-to-door trying to raise funds for an environmental group, Citizens for a Better Environment. On June 28th, a farmer found yellow plastic bags with legs and a torso inside of them in a field about three miles southwest of where Madden was last seen. Two weeks later, more yellow plastic bags were found three miles northeast of where Madden disappeared from. This time, the bags contained a skull and arms. All of these body parts were confirmed to be Madden's remains. They told a gruesome tale to a medical examiner. Madden had been tied up and strangled. His wrists, ankles, and neck all showed ligature marks. Bullet fragments were found embedded in his skull. Some of his organs, his heart, his liver, and a kidney, as well as his genitals, were removed from his body. Investigators believe he was tortured before he was killed. Initially, Authorities suspected that Madden was killed due to his involvement in the drug world. When he was killed, he was waiting to be sentenced for possession of cocaine with intent to deliver. This angle, though, didn't pan out for police. Ultimately, mechanic Joaquin Dressler was arrested for Madden's murder after confessing to one of his neighbors. He claimed that Madden knocked on his door and they ended up talking about guns, which they were both interested in before going into the backyard to do some target practice with a rifle. According to Dressler, when he retrieved the handgun, he accidentally shot Madden in the back of the head, and after which he removed his brain and shoved it down the garbage disposal. Prosecutors believe Dressler intentionally killed Madden in what they publicly refer to as homosexual overkill. Dressler's attorneys pointed out a lack of forensic evidence linking him to the murder and wanted to tell the jury at his trial about the dismembered bodies discovered in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, on July 22, 1991, citing a possible link. These bodies found in an apartment were the victims of serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer. They blamed Russell's confession on him being drunk when he made it. A man named Keith Erickson testified that he had knocked on Dressler's door and asked him about a car he was selling. They had discussed guns and gone into the backyard shooting Dressler's rifle. The two had sex and Erickson left alive. Dressler's attorneys argued that authorities had fed the information about Madden's injuries and remains with one detective actually telling Dressler that he had shot Madden in the head, broke open his skull and put his brain down the garbage disposal and into the septic system due to alcohol related memory loss. Dressler combined or confabulated the experience with Keith Erickson, a different solicitor at his door, and the graphic information about Madden's brain. 
Despite this, a jury found Dressler guilty and he was given a mandatory life sentence. So the jury obviously thought this guy Dressler was a violent person and that he really did abduct and kill a stranger who happened to knock on his door, but it doesn't seem to match the MO in Helen's case, especially if she didn't happen to knock on his door. Raymond, Wisconsin and Racine, Wisconsin are about a 30 minute drive apart. So distance wise, you know, not that far. I mean, we've seen serial killers travel much further distances, but it's kind of hard to think that, you know, some of these cases that we've just talked about, even though they involved dismemberment, have any connection whatsoever to Helen's case. The, the one thing that did strike me more if as we were going through some of these is the body parts being wrapped up sometimes in garbage bags. I immediately started thinking about Dexter. Did you ever watch that show? Yeah. Great show. Yeah. I mean, that was one of my favorite shows and I just kept flashing back to episodes of, you know, Dexter dismembering bodies and wrapping them in garbage bags. Now he dumped his in the, in the uh, ocean, but that's where my mind went. Isn't it amazing that we live in a world where you can get anything you need when you need it right to your door with DoorDash, you can get pretty much anything. And whether you're sick and you don't feel like getting out of the house, DoorDash has you covered. Maybe you're at a party and you run out of alcohol or ice or something like that, but you want to keep that party going. You need a little assist. DoorDash has you covered. Sometimes my wife and I, we just don't feel like making dinner. We're tired. We want to watch a show. That's when we hit DoorDash. DoorDash makes it easy to get the food that you want without all of the hassle. And I'm always amazed when I go on DoorDash by the selection. You know, whether you're in the mood for fast food or something a little fancy, maybe a nice steak. I know around me, they have just about everything. The hardest part for my wife and I is deciding on what we both want. That's the only trouble we ever have. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered must be 21 and over to order alcohol drink responsibly alcohol available only in select markets hey folks we want to introduce you to the game june's journey if you haven't played this you don't know what you're missing it's so much fun for you amateur sleuths it really brings out the inner detective because it's all about finding clues and solving mysteries you get to play as June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You have to use your observation skills, solve mind-teasing mysteries. I love the graphics on this game. I love the hidden object aspect of it. It's full of mystery, danger, and even romance. You can even customize your very own luxurious estate island. And you can chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. So, you know, escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker while you travel back to the glamorous 1920s. I've been playing this game for a couple of years now, and it's a great escape from everything that goes into putting out the podcast. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Investigators also looked at other murders in the area, even if the victim hadn't been dismembered. After all, Helen's cause of death is unknown, so even a partial match to a victim type or an MO could have been helpful in finding the killer. On March 26, 1973, about 10 years before Helen disappeared, 15-year-old Tina Davidson disappeared in Racine and was later found murdered. She was just days away from turning 16 at the time. At 8.30 p.m. on the 26th, Tina left a friend's house and vanished. She told her mom she was going to spend the night at a friend's house, but she told her friend before she left that she was going to hitchhike west on Washington Avenue to another friend's house, where she actually did intend to stay the night. She never showed up at her other friend's house. On March 29, 1973, Tina's nude body was found on Lake Michigan Beach by a woman out walking with her child. She had been hit over the head and had been unconscious when she was stabbed 61 times, all in the neck and chest. The fatal wound was a stab to the heart. It was clear she had been dragged to where she was ultimately found. Her sweater, white shirt, brown baggy pants, 
and construction boots were never found. Tina's murder has never been solved, but no evidence was found to actually link her killing to Helen's murder. Since both cases remain unsolved, it's always possible that they were killed by the same person. More likely, though, as we have seen so many times before, there were just a lot of bad people in one spot, kind of around the same time. And that's one thing that has jumped out at me since we started doing the podcast. You know, inevitably, when you research one case, you start to find out about other cases, possible connections. And, you know, it really just gives you this overwhelming feeling that there are a lot of bad people operating in the same area in the same time frame. And it's kind of a scary thought, really. Yeah, I always think about what's scarier, one person doing a whole bunch of awful crimes or the possibility there's several people doing these shocking things in one area. And we're not talking, you know, like Los Angeles or Seattle or huge cities where you would expect with a large population to have lots of different things going on at once. Racine, compared to those cities, those big cities, didn't have nearly the population, but to see this kind of stuff going on uh, over a relatively short span of time in the area um, definitely seems shocking. And I can only imagine that residents there were paying attention to these things when they heard about them. In 1991, an article in the Journal Times made it seem like there was movement and that the case was coming to a close. Reporter John Keefe wrote in part, But the mystery may be over. For the first time, police now have a suspect. The tip stemmed from someone who had called in an anonymous tip to Crime Stoppers, and it made investigators take another look at their old case files. One detective was quoted as saying, The information was very good. Very, very good. It was apparently information never part of press reports, making it very likely the person's tip was true. Authorities asked the caller, only identified as 90-152, to call back and speak with them again. It's unclear whether the caller ever did call to discuss her tip, but whatever information was given to investigators in 1991, it did not solve the case. Helen's murder was not solved and her killer was not named. And this is something that you often see in cases that go unsolved for many, many years. There's a break and it's reported that they're close to solving the case. And then it's almost as if the reporting just kind of stops because it's not the break that police thought it was going to be. And a lot of times, you know, the papers don't write about it after that because nothing came out of it. And it's kind of tough because, you know, you're getting this information that is so optimistic and then it just fizzles out and you don't hear anything after that, that's one thing I've noticed in, in researching so many cases that we do papers are quick to write about, you know, a break, a tip, uh, you know, something that might come to fruition. They don't always then go back and write that it didn't or why it didn't, or because I don't know, people don't want to read about that. I guess investigator Jim Prioletto, who was assigned to Helen's case in 2008 says that the man renting a room from Helen, only known as Larry, has been ruled out as a suspect. In fact, all of their top suspects have. He told the journal, in this case, everyone that we've come across has been eliminated. Adding, I personally think that there's someone out there with a name that is scared to come forward. Whoever gave investigators that anonymous Crime Stoppers tip in 1991 waited eight years. At least it seems they did. It's unknown when authorities received the tip. We only know when it was made public. There could be someone close to the killer that has not given up what they know still to this day, perhaps for fear of retribution. Police have wondered if there's something they overlooked, that perhaps the clue that could solve the case has been missed. Racine Detective Prioletta told the journal, maybe there's a piece of evidence somewhere that didn't get tested in the right lab. Helen's sister-in-law, Doreen, told the journal, It would be nice to know that the person is someday caught and doesn't go free for the rest of their life. You would like to think that there was an end to it. Is that person running around now? Is he dead? 
And we don't know the answer to Dorian's question. Is that person still free and able to do this to someone else? Well, and I would take it a step further. Have they done it to someone else or many people? Again, a scary thought. Yeah, I think with the shocking details of of how they dismembered her body and spread that around, it's possible that's a one-off crime that that person never did anything like that again. But then again, that seems like something that could be part of a pattern. So I don't blame the police for looking for crimes that had similarities because in my mind, someone that's capable of doing that once could certainly do that more than once. Well, I will say this. I always think rightly or wrongly that these individuals are responsible for more crimes, even after they're caught and they fess up and they say, well, I did this, this, and this. I always feel like they leave stuff out. If the police don't ask them about a certain case, a murder, would they volunteer? And and my thought is probably no. So I don't know. Maybe it's just the cynic in me, but I always feel as though some of these killers are responsible for many more violent acts than we're ever made aware of. Yeah, and it's possible that this person could have moved away and done these kinds of crimes in other areas around the country. So maybe police just didn't cast that net far enough to to find similar crimes. Well, and I think some of those crimes would be hard to link. You know, if you move from Racine, Wisconsin to Miami, Florida, how likely is it, even though the crimes might be similar, that they would be linked together? Probably would be pretty tough, and especially tough in the early 80s, I would think, compared to today. Helen's sister, Jean, passed away on May 22nd, 2017, without ever finding out what happened to Helen. She was the last of her siblings to pass away. Doreen Stelmack, Helen's sister-in-law, appears to still be alive and in her mid-80s. Maybe she can get answers before she passes away. If someone out there does have information about Helen's murder, time is running out for them to come forward and to help bring justice. Unless the killer was very young in 1983, there is a chance that they too have already passed away or will in the near future. If the killer was Helen's age, they would be in their 80s or 90s today. There are a few things that people still seize on when discussing Helen's case. They want to know, for one, exactly how investigators were able to clear Larry, the man running a room from Helen living in her home. If he really told Jean that her sister didn't have much longer to live, they want to know why he said that. The unknown woman calling Jean with the same warning is very puzzling as well, and maybe Larry could shed some light on that phone call. It's almost indicative of some sort of plan targeting Helen. What are the chances two separate people would warn that someone would not live long, only for them to be killed soon after, and it not be related at all? Yeah, I don't think the chances are all that great that, you know, they would not be related. It just seems so strange to me. And, you know, we haven't talked all that much about Larry. For one thing, there's not a lot out there about him. You know, we know it's been said that he was cleared as a suspect. The problem is here, like in many cases, the details behind that aren't made public. You know, how did they clear him? Was it an alibi? You know, what exactly led to police crossing him off their list? Because, you know, like you just said, more if he really said this to Gene, the question is why? And to me, it's it's very concerning that then Helen later disappeared and, you know, was found murdered, dismembered. He just seems like a like a guy who would really have been at the top of their list. And then again, we did mention that the information about Larry telling Gene that Helen didn't have long to live, that call came out years after the fact. So we don't know if police ever confronted him about that. Maybe they cleared him early on and then found out later about the call that he supposedly had with Gene. Hopefully they went back and followed up and say, Hey, by the way, why did you make this call? Uh, But we just don't know those details. So at the end of the day, this Larry 
guy is intriguing, and hopefully the police did rule him out properly with a, a good alibi uh, or something physical evidence, whatever that that ruled him out. But again, we don't know all the the answers of when he was ruled out, only that he was ruled out in the minds of police. And we know that as of 2008, according to investigator Jim Prioletta, he was still ruled out. And that was well after they had the information from Gene about the phone call. So you could make the argument that they ruled him out early on and then this new information came to light, but it seems as though nine, 10 years after they got the information, he was still being ruled out. So like you said, hopefully they, they vetted it out completely, but staying with that same theme of this phone call that Jean claims she had with Larry, we're still left to wonder if it's accurate that police didn't question Helen's sister, Jean, until many, many years after Helen was found dead, why is that? And we don't even have all the details around how they got the information. If, you know, a new investigator came out, talked to Jean, got the information that way, or if she offered it up many years later, it just seems like a typical part of an investigation of someone who vanishes or turns up dead and dismembered that you would go out to family members. Like you said earlier, Morphin, ask them questions about, you know, did this person have any enemies? Had any threats been made against them? Now it's also unclear who owned or stayed in the vacant home where Helen's remains were found. How long had the home been vacant? Is it possible? that someone killed Helen, buried or left her remains in the backyard, and then moved out of the area. If it wasn't someone connected to the home, it may have been someone who simply knew that the house was empty and no one would be there doing any work. Did it look abandoned? Was there a for sale sign? Kids in the area must have known it was empty if they were playing in the backyard without getting yelled at. Did an adult notice this? Maybe someone living nearby who was aware that no one was living in the home close enough to keep an eye on traffic at that address. There are a few reasons that come to mind why a murderer might dismember their victims. As we saw with Sonia Rao's murder, a killer might want to conceal the evidence of the crime, including the body. Sonia was dismembered solely so that she would fit in the trash can and placed in bags only to contain the mess and make it unlikely anyone would know that she was inside the bags. A human body is large and distinctly shaped, so dismemberment makes it easier to move a body and place it somewhere for disposal without it being obvious what's inside the box or bag it's stored in. Sonia was only found because her leg happened to fall out. Otherwise, it looked like any other trash that day. Separating a body into smaller pieces also makes it easier to hide, but Helen wasn't really hidden. Her remains were more dropped or placed near the railroad tracks and in the yard where they were found. Some killers dismember parts of their victims like their hands to conceal their identities and delay the investigation. Helen's hands were found and so was her head. So it doesn't seem like it was about hiding her identity. Sometimes a killer may dismember their victim to leave some sort of message, whether as a sick mind game or to scare others involved in their business. This is more common with things like cartel murders, but it doesn't seem as if Helen's body was meant to send any message. Helen's torso was the only part of her body that was never found. The home on 12th Street where Helen's remains were found and the two spots along the railroad tracks where the rest of the recovered remains were found were all within about one to two miles of Helen's home on Center Street. Could that indicator killer was also from the area, a local? What has never been released is the address of the friend Helen was headed to see the day she vanished, so we don't know what route she took, or if she passed by any of the locations where her remains were found. You know, as we wrap up this case, at the end of the day, we don't even know if Helen was actually a murder victim. As we mentioned early on, her cause of death could not be determined based on the condition of her remains and the fact that her torso was never found, but it seems likely that she was indeed the victim of foul play. And that opens up the possibility 
that the killer may have left a big clue for police, something they wouldn't know to avoid leaving behind in 1983, and that's DNA. We know that DNA, with the help of genealogy, can solve decades-old cases. Might that one day be possible in Helen's case? I mean, that's something we'll have to wait and see. It's another thing that we often see in these cases, Morph, and it's that we don't always know exactly what evidence police have. It's not like they always just come out and say, well, this is what we've got and just, you know, tick down the list. They're not going to give everything away. I think if there's anything positive, it's that back in 1983, when Helen was found dead, that although police might not have known about DNA and some of the crime fighting things that we have today, So if she was killed, that means that her killer wouldn't have known about not leaving DNA behind. So that may one day solve this case. And and like we said, we're assuming that she was the victim of foul play. There are other possibilities. She could have died from something such as an accident, an overdose, and then someone decided that they needed to dismember her. To me, that just doesn't seem very plausible, though. I understand there are cases where there's an accident or, you know, something happens and the person with the the victim realizes that they're going to be looked at and thought of as a suspect. Maybe they think, well, the police aren't going to believe that this was an accident or that this happened. So they panic, but I just don't see it here in this case. I think Helen was murdered and I think her killer purposefully dismembered her body, but I'm struggling with the why of both the murder and the dismemberment, because as we mentioned, you know, the dismemberment didn't seem to serve any real purpose that was discernible, didn't hide her identity. It didn't delay the investigation. So what are we left with? Really? more of a sadistic type of reasoning. Yeah, I think at the very least, we're talking about somebody that's disturbed to even be able to to dismember a body, even if Helen somehow did die of natural causes or, as you mentioned, an overdose accident, whatever. The fact they could do this to her body, I think, is is pretty disturbing in itself. So at the very least, we've, we've got that uh, disturbing image. But I think also, sort of touching on what you said, there was no attempt here to hide her body. If the sole intent was, how do I get rid of that body? You're not going to leave it in multiple spots to be found, which was the case with Helen's remains. They wanted these to be found, and they they figured that they would be. So um, it's pretty clear that this person wasn't trying to just hide what had happened and get rid of her body. If you have any information on the murder of Helen Sebastian, it's not too late to call the Racine Police Department Detective Bureau at 262-635-7756, or you can give your tip anonymously to Crime Stoppers by calling 262-636-9330. Even if it involves people who have passed away, or it's just something you heard growing up, it's worth a call. Maybe the anonymous caller we talked about, known as 90-152, shared some information after talking to Crime Stoppers. And if that caller is still out there, they called authorities once before, and maybe they'll do so again. At the end of the day, this is a really bizarre case. Helen puts on a pot roast and plans on coming home to eat it and walks out to go to her friend's house to play cards and then winds up missing and dismembered. So I think the, the crucial clue is who she saw in that time what happened, what interaction there was, because it seems between leaving her home and getting to her friend's home, that's where the answer to this case may lie. And we mentioned earlier that we don't know the route she would have taken, what the address was of this friend. I don't think that's been publicly put out there, but that couldn't indicate that there's someone dangerous along that route. And and maybe that's where police need to focus. Yeah. There's just so many things that we don't know when it comes to this case We don't know everything that the police did, who they questioned. You know, I'm still trying to figure out how Larry was ruled out. 
and why he would have said that, you know, to Gene on the phone, that's got me stumped. And then, you know, one of the questions I have is, and I think about this a lot in unsolved cases, was Helen targeted? Meaning somebody was watching her. They saw her leave and they took that as their opportunity. Or was this a a, a killer, assuming there was a killer, that was out there looking for a victim and happened to see Helen. I mean, both of them are horrible. No matter how this happened, it's horrible. But I do have that question of whether this was someone who was intent on murdering Helen or saw Helen and sees that as, to them, an opportunity to kill. Yeah, and I think that's where those threatening phone calls come into play because if they happen leading up to her going missing and then being found dead, you know, I think we have to consider those calls as possible threats from the person that ultimately harmed her. Yeah, they do give a a sense of um, a little bit more intent, right, than than we have in, in many cases. You know, I often think that a lot of unsolved cases remain unsolved because the killer had no ties to the victim whatsoever. Those cases are much harder to solve. And, you know, I could make that assumption here as well, but the phone calls kind of lead you in a different direction. They kind of make it seem as though someone had it in for Helen. But the question is why and who? But that's it for our episode on Helen Sebastian. If you love the show and you haven't done so yet, take a minute, go out, give us a rating, leave a review. Keep telling your friends that word of mouth really helps us out. If you want to find us on social media, we're on Twitter with the handle at criminology pod, or you can find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash criminology podcast. You can also join our Facebook discussion group, criminology podcast discussion and fans. So that's another episode of criminology in the books, but Morph and I will be back with all of you next Saturday night with a brand new episode. So until then for Mike, and Morph. We'll talk to you next week. Take care, everyone.